Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's been a few days since I was on the air last, but um, I haven't forgotten about you all. I'm sure that some of you, or most of you, who are um, very um, avid uh, listeners to my podcasts have been wondering where I've been all this time. Well, uh, my wife and I were out of town from uh, Thursday evening till uh, yesterday. We were in uh, Colonial Williamsburg, or should I say the uh, Historic Triangle of Virginia. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Historic Triangle, it encompasses Colonial Williamsburg, Historic Jamestown, and Yorktown. No matter how many times my wife and I go to Williamsburg, we're always learning something new all the time. That's the importance about history. It's to learn about the past to carry it into the present, but how, um, but of course I must be reminded that not all of history is always pretty, and that yes, there have been some unfortunate things that have happened in our history, whether it's around the world or say in the United States, but we, it's up to us as individuals on how we choose to learn from our past so that we have a better understanding of it um, in the present state and how it will guide us in the future. So, here we are discussing uh, John Aller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. You know, it's easy to assume that when the British are um, waging this war in the, in the southern uh, colonies, or of course we like to think of ourselves as the United States, but the British still are going to treat us as colonial subjects. For one, they don't believe that we really know what it takes to be independent, and two, they are convinced that at some point we will lose this war, most notably uh, come fighting in the South, that once the tide turns their direction, that we will go back to becoming subjects to the crown. Well, there is one disadvantage the British have. The British don't realize that they are fighting um, an enemy in South Carolina that's not so much British inflicting harm on the Americans or the Americans inflicting harm on the British. What they don't understand is that it's a conflict, as mentioned from a previous podcast, what the British don't realize is that this is a conflict amongst South Carolinians. They are fighting their own civil war against each other. Sure, they can be called partisans in redcoats or patriots in redcoats for that matter, but they are fighting an internal battle amongst each other. So, we're going to uh, talk about um, some uh, change in momentum tonight. We're not just talking one battle. We're going to be talking about multiple skirmishes that you can say are small-scale battles. But the irony to all the small-scale battles that will be fought in South Carolina is that over time, these small-scale skirmishes will have long-term repercussions on the British as well as the loyalist militia. How so? Well, for one, the British aren't used to fighting guerrilla-style warfare, which is what Francis Marion has engaged in. But two, while the losses may seem small, the bigger the problems come with time as to being able to replace those men who have not only been killed or wounded, but in some instances have decided to become um, defectors and defect over to the Patriot um, side. So hopefully we can get a better understanding of just how big these internal struggles are going to become for the British and their ultimate objective, 
which is to um, get the Americans, or especially those in the South, to eventually uh, succumb to um, British um, reign, or let alone British um, rule to where all 13 of her subjects, being the colonies, will become um, not just subjects in general, but subjects to the crown. So, our lead-off question tonight is the following, or lead-off bonus question, I should say. Despite the uplifting victory at Nelson's Ferry from August 25th of 1780, I should say, was Francis Marion still at a disadvantage? Yes, he is. How so when you've just won an uplifting victory that can restore um, some form of morale? Well, Marion lacks logistical support from above as well as military authority. So in other words, you know, Marion is the commander of the militia, but yet he doesn't have any true designated roles to say, hey, you are supposed to do this. You cannot do this and that. Sure, he can um, set a good example, but who is he going to be able to turn to for a superior that can reinforce the uh, rules that he puts into play to say, hey, you are to do as you're told under uh, Francis Marion. So basically, Marion's at his own uh, mercy. In other words, he's at his own mercy in terms of how he's going to plan attacks on British troops and Tory followers. But you know what? Francis Marion has learned enough about warfare, especially during his days from the French and Indian War, learning about this irregular style of fighting that the Cherokees had waged uh, upon um, Eng the English. After all, folks, you know, the Cherokees have it out for uh, those who um, had encroached upon their lands, most notably the Europeans, but it wasn't in traditional style warfare. It was means by um, doing irregular. That is, you're not in a true provincial regiment. You are surprising the enemy at your own will. The losses, like I said earlier, might be small, but over time they do incur to where the enemy does not have enough backbone to mount a, to mount a, a counterattack. Maybe not all the time, but in some instances it does. Another bonus question is the following. You know, fighting in South Carolina is far different, I should say, than, say, um, New York State. Why do I use that as an example? Well, uh, two months earlier, or let alone, here we are in August of 1780, it was about, what, 10 days earlier that uh, Horatio Gates uh, was soundly defeated at Camden by um, Charles Cornwallis and the British regulars. General Gates uh, was under this assumption that he could fight the same kind of warfare that he had conducted at Saratoga three years earlier in 1777, what Gates doesn't realize is that the terrain in South Carolina is not the same as it is in New York State. I could go into a variety of reasons for that, but it. But what we must remember is that, um, you know, in South Carolina there are far more swamps and marshlands than, say, in New York State. So the next bonus question is the following. What are the high hills of Santee? They are a narrow range of sand hills located north of the Santee River and run east along the Wateree River. 
This area was a haven during the summer when it came to escaping the oppressive heat and malaria. Well, South Carolina summers are very brutal. Well, Virginia summers are too, but I can't imagine living in South Carolina at this time and dealing not only with just oppressive heat, but the, but always that never-ending potential of contracting malaria. And we most of us should know what malaria is. It's where mosquitoes um, infest the water or let alone infest something that can come into uh, contact with humans. And once a human being uh, contracts whatever it is that a, a mosquito or an insect has done, it um, leads to malaria and sadly can cause uh, death. Now, between late August and early September of 1780, this is going to be a unique time, um, not just for one side, but for both sides fighting. That is, the British and the Tories, obviously being on the same page, but also for the rebels and the patriots. Both sides are on the move, but more so the British and the Tories. They're on the move looking to capture rebels and patriots along with Francis Marion. But Francis Marion is going to always, from what I um, read leading into this uh, discussion, Francis Marion it, it didn't just strike it with pure luck. In other words, he didn't have a touch of gold just to be able to uh, be one step ahead of the enemy. What do you think Marion relies on to be able to be better prepared? Well, he's got to have people out there who can be spies. And of course, just because you have a spy working for you, it doesn't always mean that the spy himself is going to be on your side. But luckily, Marion has garnered enough respect, not only from within his own militia, but from those who um, who work with him um, on the outskirts to know that, hey, this guy can be trusted, and we don't mind sending any of our men out into the open to do um, undercover work for him so that he can be one step ahead. So... On September 3rd of 1780, Francis Marion will learn from spies that Tory militia from the north were planning a surprise attack for the next day. And it turns out that the um, men who Marion will be confronted with on the British side are expatriates. So there you have it, folks. We, we can't always assume that the enemy is from within the British they are um, people from who are expatriates, and in the case even with the patriots, it can sometimes have been ex-Tories, uh, as we have learned from earlier podcasts. So we have a fellow named Major Micah Jaw Ganey, along with a Captain Jesse Bearfield, who lead a force of 250 men to break Marion's dominance in the PD region north of Georgetown. The next day, on September 4th, Marion and his forces will set out on horseback in search of Tory militia along present-day South Carolina Highway 41. You know, every, sometimes when I'm traveling on the major roads, I have to remind myself that at one time, all of that area, wherever I'm driving, was once woods or was wooded forest. Um, yes, you know, interstates may have... Our interstate system might be around, have been around for at least 60-some years, but to think at one time all of that could have been wooded area. 
And for all we know, there could have been revolutionary war activity going on in that area that now is a modern-day highway. Late morning of September 4th, Marion and his band of horse riders go about making a good decision. They somehow intercept a Tory party of 45 horsemen under Major, under Major Ganey's command going south. And there is a skirmish. The confrontation, or the battle alone, will lead to 30 out of 45 Tory militiamen being killed or wounded. 67% casualty loss. This is a huge step in the right direction when you consider almost three weeks earlier, we've been badly routed at Camden and at Fishing Creek to the point where who would have thought that even morale itself had a chance to be restored and most of all, light at the end of the tunnel. There was that lone holdout, folks. Who was it? Very easy, Francis Marion. And remember, he had a choice. He could have told his... Uh, fellow militiamen, just how bad things ended at Camden at Fish, as well as at Fishing Creek, but he chose not to because he knew that if any more bad news he gave to them, there would have been defections, desertions, and people, or should I say men, just saying, hey, hell with it. Why should I even be fighting? Marion didn't. Thanks to him, the flame for independence is um, still going strong, but it's still by a thread. The big question, though, is can Francis Marion stay alive? Not only protecting his men, but can he stay alive? Because without him, who's going to pick up the tab? Who's going to be able to pick up the reign uh, that Marion had inspired? Another bonus question to think about is this. What would become a new norm for him? Let alone for Marion, I should say. The new norm would be to not tell anyone sensitive information from within, especially those below. Well, deserters, they, they come left and right frequently to where establishing trust becomes difficult. As I said earlier, um, those two men who became a major, and um, along with the captain, um, Ganey and, um, and uh, Bearfield, they were expatriates. They were slighted over reasons that we would think of today are ridiculous. But hey, look, back in those days, it was a big deal. So basically, it would have been very easy for anyone to have found fault over something for all the wrong reasons. So Francis Marion knows that, hey, look, the only way I can really establish any trust is to not tell too much information because I never know when one or two of my men might end up defecting. Later in the day on September 4th, Marion and his forces will strike again by surprising a Tory infantry near the Blue Savannah. Well, there's Savannah, Georgia, but why the Blue Savannah? Well, the Blue Savannah is one of many South Carolina sandy rim depressions that were caused by ancient meteors but it, but these um, but the blue savanna was home to pine shrubs, which infiltrated these um, depressions. Just a little geographical uh, information for you all, in case you were wondering what the blue savanna is. Tory losses at Blue Savannah were small, but their forces had been scattered due to Marion's surprise attacks. Remember, folks, small small scale attacks. The uh, casualty loss, the casualties may not be high, 
but these small-scale attacks are going to keep um, keep the British and the Tories on on edge to the point where um, future attacks might be scrapped or um, people might just give up fighting altogether. So um, Marion's force, as a result of this uh, success, Marion's forces will soon double after the victories from uh, September 4th. And within two weeks' time, the British now have figured out whom this fella is and his ability to inflict harm. He went from being a nobody now to a somebody, and on one, and one hand is a good thing if you're on the Patriot side, but if you're on the Loyalist and the British side, you know that you've got your hands full and you've got to find a way to say, hey, what is it going to take to stop this guy? September 7th, Marion learns that roughly 150 British regulars and Tories in Williamsburg are doing... Um, are doing um, acts, or let alone engaging in acts of barbarity that um, not only affect people's property, but let alone people's well-being. From burning homes, especially burning the homes of men whom joined his brigade. As a matter of fact, one man was hung by the British because he refused to tell the British officers sensitive information. He knew that if he told them that it could lead to other men losing their lives, but sadly this man was executed in front of his own family. This is another example right here of where I can't imagine what it would have been like living in this time in South Carolina and witnessing these acts of barbarity. Let alone, it may not have been by the British... On one hand, it could not have been by the British themselves, but regardless of whether it was done by the British or let alone loyalist neighbors, these acts of barbarity are uh, deplorable. You know, my father once told me, he said, you know, Kirk, as much as we should be reminded about this stuff, I'm glad I wasn't alive during that time. Because if I had, I'm not so sure I would even have lived to have seen the end result. That is, are um, the Americans actually defeating the British once and, all, once and for all to where we actually won our independence from them on a battlefield? Yes, you could be safe on a battlefield. That w- you were better off being alive on a battlefield than you were a prisoner of war or let alone um, uh, dying from disease as a result of a gunshot wound at that time. But... Um, but no, the the acts the acts of barbarity committed on both sides was bad. But I just cannot imagine. Here you are, demonstrating your loyalties to the patriot side, and yet you lose your loved one right in front of you because he he or she was executed because they did not want to um, put other um, people's names and da- people's lives in danger. Just remember, folks, freedom isn't free. And by 1780, here's a good bonus question right here. By 1780, what place in South Carolina was was considered to be 100% Whig? King's Tree. And why would King's Tree become so important? Well, it turns out that Marion met a captured Tory prisoner whom revealed that 400 Redcoats and Tories planned to gather in King's Tree, being 20 miles west of Indiantown, 
with the intent of putting down Marion's forces. So here you have it, folks. It's one thing to capture someone. The chances of them um, revealing information may not always be a 100% guarantee, but the fact that a captured Tory prisoner was willing to put his own life on the line to say, hey, I'll be willing to tell you what's going to happen. And who knows, maybe this Tory prisoner could have been given um, clemency to where he was allowed to join on the Patriot side. I think that would be a smart thing to do because if you released him, who's to say that he might not um, inflict some harm other somewhere else down the road? Another bonus question here is the following. Given Horatio Gates had left the battlefield in disgrace at Camden a month earlier, did Francis Marion still correspond with him? Yes, he did. I was reminded of that. I thought once Gates had left Camden that he was court-martialed and all that. Well, his days of being on the battlefield were over, but at least he was kind enough to uh, correspond with Marion. And because without that correspondence, I'm not there again. Who does Marion even uh, go about corresponding with? So uh, on September 8th of 1780, Marion and 60 of his men retreat north to North Carolina, but are stationed along the North Carolina South Carolina line. This is important, folks, because you know it's we can't stay in one place. The longer we stay in one place, the more vulnerable Marion and his men will become. Uh, to being um, captured by the British, and then all of a sudden this um, hope of, or let alone beacon for independence will become extinguished altogether. So moving along the border lines or the boundary lines between North, Carolina, North and South Carolina will serve as an asset. Um, think about it, because Marion's men could use some rest, but by going north into North Carolina, they can also... Um, get ready to um, mount another attack once they know it's ready, It's time to go back down south and, and catch the enemy off guard. Basically, it's a game of cat and mouse. Here's a bonus question right here. Who's James Wemmis? James Wemmis is a British commander who not only pursued Marion, but went about destroying rebel property on mass scale to where Towns residents lost their means of livelihood. Not just their means of livelihood, but this includes food and clothing. All of this is essential. I mean, if your home gets burnt, where else do you have to go? Uh, remember, folks, there are no such things as Red Cross shelters at this time. And yes, if someone else's home didn't get burnt, you might be able to uh, live with them. And... To make matters worse, folks, we're not just talking homes being burnt, but this also means uh, churches as well. So really, nobody's property is immune, which is unfortunate. And the burning of um, these properties um, would lead some in Marion's own brigade to... Um, to do the opposite, that was to burn some properties. And the burnings that were led by um, James Wemus, or Wemus, I should say, 
they, ha they only further fueled anti-British sentiment. So it's one thing to destroy the property of a patriot's home, but that doesn't mean that the patriot's going to sit back and feel sorry for himself and expect everyone to have a pity party for him. No. If you burn someone's property, yeah, you are fueling the fire. But remember, folks, that uh, prior to the American Revolution, especially breaking out in South Carolina, the fire has already been fueled pretty bad between the people of South Carolina from within. But that escalation has only, the escalation of the fire has only gone even higher up by this point in time. And as I said earlier, some of Marion's men would resort to burning homes in retaliation for what the British under Commander Wemyss had done. And Marion himself would still report these incidents to his superior, Horatio Gates. This is an obvious bonus question, but I'm going to ask it to you all. Did Marion's men have strong respect for him? Yes. In large part, given his natural ability to lead men into non-traditional combat, which translated into momentous strides regarding morale and recruitment. So it's not just fighting guerrilla warfare, but by doing so and striking the British and the Loyalists where it's least expected, not only is morale restored, but the ability to recruit outsiders becomes even bigger. So basically it's a, it's a good double-edged sword that will uh, benefit Marion and his um, current uh, group of followers uh, it will benefit them down the road for all the right reasons. And right now, Marion and his men are at a place called White Marsh, North Carolina, which is on that North and South Carolina line. But it turns out that the uh, current state of weather con conditions began to have an effect on Marion's unit. His men started contracting malaria due to a heavy, wet summer. Think about it. The more rain that um, takes place, that leads to uh, a greater, um, what do you call it, um, nest for mosquito breeding to the point where more mosquitoes congregate, the greater the likelihood of people becoming exposed to the disease. So, because of this, Marion is smart enough to decide on that an eventual return back to South Carolina needs to um, take place as soon as possible. Given that British Commander James Wemyss had burned a handful of homes, did this also include Indian Town Presbyterian Church where many of Marion's men had regularly worshipped? Yes. And other churches either got burned or turned into British military post centers. So as I said earlier, no building that belonged to the Patriots or the Whigs really got spared by Major um, by British Commander James Wemyss. He was on a mission. Obviously, that was to find a way to break Francis Marion's spirit to the point where Marion and his uh, followers or his ragtag band of militiamen would ultimately surrender and become uh, subjects to the crown. And on September 24th, Marion and his brigade officially left Great White Marsh, North Carolina to return to South Carolina after a two-week hiatus or let alone an encampment. 
And believe it or not, they cover 50 miles in one day. You know, this day and time, you're lucky if you could cover maybe between 10 and 20 miles. But what is, what, what is Tumerian's advantage, folks? These men aren't marching. They're moving by horse, cavalry, which is something that Horatio Gates did not fully appreciate. Remember what I said from a very early podcast? Gates had no respect for cavalry. And I think he had to learn the hard way at Camden. Francis Marion has learned the value about cavalry for quite some time. So if you appreciate the means of getting around by horse, you'll get to your destination probably a lot sooner than by, um, than by um, foot. After having arrived into Lynch's Creek on September 28th, what would become the next target for Marion and his band of militiamen? Well, there is a Tory militia encampment roughly 15 miles away at Dollard's Tavern on the bank of, Mingo, of Black Mingo Creek. What's unique about Black Mingo Creek? Well, Marion, it turns out that Francis Marion himself knows a handful of prominent Tory families knowing that they hailed from the St. James and St. Stephen's parishes, especially a fellow named John Ball, who was a, well, uh, a rice planter whom Marion would go up against on the night of uh, September 28th. You know, you would think that Marion would have it out for his neighbors, especially knowing that some of his neighbors don't even like him, given the side he has taken. Marion didn't take his neighbor's threat seriously to where he was looking for revenge. So there you have it, folks. Marion's not interested in an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. What he's more interested in is making sure that his personal freedoms, along with those who value what he stands for, are not encroached by a tyrant who lives 3,000 miles away who is already imposing his will on subjects who already have um, vehemently made it be known that measures like the Stamp Act, where it was taxation without representation, to the Townshend duties, to the Tea Act, um, all of these measures being very, um, what we might think of today as unconstitutional because there was no proper representation, all in the name of... Um, infringing upon the colonists' independence, but independence that um, did not um, get fully um, acknowledged, all in the name of um, not proper, all in the name of not having any kind of proper representation. So that's what Marion, Marion wants proper representation, but he does not want to be um, he doesn't want to have anything uh, take place or put into place without proper consent. Well, people of Massachusetts were ardent about that. Men like John Hancock, Paul Revere, Sam Adams. So, what I think should be, um, what I think should be interested in, um, or let alone what I should, what I should mentioned that's interesting to point out is that uh, many of the engagements in the southern um, states 
involved smaller numbers on both sides. You did have um, large, you had some, what do you call it, large battles, but there are a lot of engagements that are um, on a smaller scale, which is why there is guerrilla warfare style fighting. For example, um, at Black Mingo uh, Creek, you would have about 47 Tories fighting Marion's um, unit of 70. And what happened here? Well, the Tories lost 16. They had three killed and 13 wounded versus Marion's men having two killed and eight wounded. The victory at Black Mingo allowed Marion's forces to capture the Tory ammunition and horses. Captured Tories, believe it or not, went about taking an oath of allegiance to Marion and his brigade. So I think there's an easy ultimatum now. Hey, look, if, if you get captured, you have two choices. I mean, you, you can either remain a prisoner or you can be on our side. On the other hand, um, when you think about when I think about that scenario, I often think of the um, soldiers in New York who um, who were placed on uh, prison ships. I learned uh, while my wife and I were in Williamsburg that the um, higher ranking officers on the American side who were prisoners spent uh, time above; those below were in the uh, confines. Of the, um, they were um, relegated to the floors, the lowest level, where they endured um, horrendous treatment. And yet they were given two choices: you either stay, remain as a prisoner, you remain as a prisoner of war, or you can take up arms with us, being the crown. Those men made the ultimate sacrifice, folks, by staying below to protect everyone else from above who were not only fighting for their independence but but were also fighting for the fighting for the nation's independence as a whole and just know this folks here's an important historical fact historians know that about at least 10 or 12,000 men died as a result of being prisoner of war the vast majority of those men died in New York it's one thing to die on a battlefield, but I just can't imagine dying as a prisoner of war. The, um, there is a book that I will eventually try to read down the road called Jersey Ships. And what that refers to is the um, campaign of 1776, where um, the British campaign of New York, and, um, and it encompasses uh, parts of New Jersey where... Um, American soldiers were not only taken prisoner of war, but were relegated to the ships where they died a very inhumane way. And it was a mini version of a um, holocaust that we sadly knew from World War II time. Now, what made Marion's victory at Black Mingo significant? This was his third straight victory in September, which brought Tory activity in the South Carolina Low Country to a grinding halt. You know, we went from the middle of August to being annihilated at Camden and as well as at Fishing Creek, or Fisher's Creek, I should say. And who would have thought that three, what do you call it, mid-level, um, not battles, but three mid-level uh, skirmishes 
that in the eyes of many could be seen as lower lower tier uh, engagements could somehow bring a huge sense of morale and confidence to the people of South Carolina who are on the right side, being that of the Patriots. But knowing that now we've got momentum on our side and the British don't even know how to respond back to this fella. This fella now seems to be one step ahead of them. It's not by pure luck. It's because Francis Marion knows how to move. He knows how when to retreat. He knows when to go northward into North Carolina, but he knows when to come back south. He knows where to go at all angles to launch a strike, not just strike, but multiple strikes to where the enemy uh, will lose. It may not be the grandest number, but the enemy will lose smaller amounts over time to where the numbers add up against them to where they probably realize that the, that fighting long term may not be may not get us the end results that we want you know many of y'all are wondering why are the tory militia in south carolina having so many hardships or just let alone struggles in finding any kind of true success well, the Tory militia were either few in overall numbers or lacked commitment. This also meant a, a lack of commitment long-term to the crown. I think it's fair to say that Tory militiamen lacked leadership that Whigs benefited greatly from. In other words, the Tories didn't have a Francis Marion. They didn't have a Thomas Sumter who would become the fighting Gamecock. They didn't have an Andrew Pickens. If you don't have leaders like those men that I just mentioned a moment ago who were so beneficial to the Patriot side, how can you expect the Tories to unite as one and being able to um, repulse the Americans but to also have any kind of upper hand? It's just not doable. And by September's end, with the start of October, British leadership failed to secure South Carolina's countryside east of the Santee. And to end uh, this podcast, our last bonus question will be the following. What major battle took place on October 7th that resulted in a significant victory for rebel and patriot forces? It was at a battle known as Kings Mountain, North Carolina, right on the North and South Carolina border. For those of you who are wondering where Kings Mountain is in North Carolina, it's right outside of Charlotte. Rebel forces that were comprised from North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, and Georgia, and even though it's not a state just yet, folks, but it would comprise of men from uh, what we now know as Eastern Tennessee along the present-day Smoky Mountain region, they all came together and wounded a third, or let alone killed or wounded a third of the British force, which also included capturing almost 600 men. Kings Mountain destroyed Tory morale in the South Carolina backcountry. I saw a documentary on this once, and remember folks, irregular style fighting, 
irregular warfare, what did the Americans do? They would send they would send men out in droves. They didn't send 50 men. They would send three to five men who would fire, and then they would run back in a retreat mode, and then another group of five to ten men would come up and fire at the enemy, being the British, to where they would... Um, where they would hit their targets, but they would make the British um, enter into what's called a guessing game. The further the British would enter into the unknown uh, charted um, wooded forests, the greater the likelihood of being um, of being caught, or let alone being caught in an entanglement of Patriot forces who could subdue them from all angles. So the bottom line is that it's one thing to want to go after your enemy. Be careful how far you enter into the woods. And that's what happened at uh, King's Mountain. Um, is that in one instance that where the British did enter deep into the woods only to not make it back out alive. They were also re- uh, repulsed on more than one attempt to try to climb the hill. But our our forces uh, drove them back to where they uh, simply could not muster any more in them. But to take 600, um, 600 of their men um, hostage or prisoner, that's a big deal. And one-third of the British force being killed or wounded, 33%. Those numbers do add up over time, folks. And I think it is fair to say now that... Um, the Crown, Parliament, and let alone those uh, men, most notably uh, Cornwallis, fighting in the South. Cornwallis couldn't even make it into King's Mountain. The bottom line is the British have a problem on their hands. They thought that they had broken our backs at Camden two months earlier, but now the tide has turned so greatly that the British are on the run. And what we've been able to do now is we've been able to get them out of their primary um, base zones. In other words, their primary headquarter areas to where the further north they're they're going and trying to track us down, the longer it takes them to uh, get back uh, to their head head post stations. So the, the British are now realizing that this game of cat and mouse is going to come back and get them. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, folks, and uh, or wherever you all are, we've covered a lot of ground. I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Take care and stay safe.